Sanhedrin and some of the Jewish sects. Today I'm going to uh, just make a few brief comments about a couple more of the Jewish sects, and then we're going to go into a more detailed look at um, high priests and uh, the Roman emperor, Empire in general. Uh, before we do that, let's open up with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father and our God, we come before you thankful, Lord, that you are a God of tender mercy, that you and your love sent your only begotten Son to, to this world, that he took on human flesh, that he lived in this world, suffered, and was crucified, dead, and buried. But on the third day, he rose again. Lord, we're, we're thankful for your grace towards us and sending us that seed of the woman to die on behalf of our sins and purchase for us redemption. Lord, we pray that you bless us in this Lord's Day. Bless us as we study uh, this history around the life of Christ. We pray, Lord, that this would give us a greater understanding of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So last time I spent some time talking about the Sadducees. Um, and we noted how they had a, a real close connection with uh, the priestly roles. They're connected with the temple. They, they die out as a sect when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. I just wanted to highlight that uh, the Sadducees um, really had the support not of the general populace, they were, they were not well esteemed by the general population, but they had the support of the elite at this time. Um, you could maybe compare them to, they're the, they're the wealthy religious class, and they're rubbing shoulders with those in power. So you know, they are a very powerful uh, sect of the Jews. Um, so that, I think that's just important to keep in mind as, as we think about maybe the distinctions between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees had a lot more of popular support among, among the Jews, and the Sadducees were, were generally despised, although uh, they, are, they are wealthy and, and they're maybe more well-received among uh, the elite and, and the nobility. Then I talked a little bit about the Essenes, and um, um, their sect, we, we noted how they really um, seem to maybe be a precursor to some of the Roman Catholic monastic orders that's having a very regimented lifestyle. Um, um, uh, they take upon them themselves vows of celibacy, although not all of them were celibate um, in my research this week. seems like there was different orders among the Essenes. That's what, at least what Josephus argues. And uh, some of them were, were celibate. And there was also, they, they lived in, in different areas. So you had um, uh, some communities down by the Dead Sea. But you also had communities living throughout, it seems like, much of Judea in small little clusters. And so it's likely that uh, Christ himself uh, came into contact with, with some of the Essenes. And uh, like I said, some of them practiced celibacy, others others didn't. Um, they generally had all things in common. Um, and maybe I'll just read this here, um, what Josephus describes, uh, how Jesus, Josephus describes a typical day in their life. 
So as they arose before dawn and recited prayers to the rising sun, then each man worked at his craft until the fifth hour, which is about 11 a.m. At that time, the community assembled, put on linen loincloths, bathed in cool water, and then went to the building that was restricted to members, to a dining hall that was further restricted to those who are pure. Each Essene received bread and one bowl full of food. The priest said a prayer before anyone was permitted to touch the food, and another prayer after the meal. The members laid aside their sacred garments and resumed their work until evening. The evening meal was in the same manner as the noon meal. They ate quietly and spoke only in turn, eating and drinking only what they needed to satisfy them. So a very regimented lifestyle. And they're very, very um, zealous about laws regarding cleanness and uncleanness. Now, we, we talk about how the, how the Pharisees are, are very concerned about this. The, the Essenes almost seem to take it to a whole different level. Um, even re- you know, like, like we read, uh, like I read, um, um, dining in different areas between pure and, and impure. So, so that's the Essenes. Any questions or comments on, on either the Sadducees or the Essenes? That sounds a lot like the uh, current day kibbutz. Uh, okay. Okay. Interesting. I wonder if you know, they would tie their their lineage back to the Essenes. Um, so in Scripture, we have mention of Pharisees, Sadducees. We don't have mention uh, of the Essenes, but we do have mention of zealots in a, in a particular sense. Um, one of the of Christ's apostles is called Simon the Zealot. Now, that could be a reference to this particular sect, or I could just refer to Simon's zealous nature, his religious devotion um, uh, to the Lord. Um, it seems like most scholars take it that you know, he, he may have had some uh, affiliation in the past or, or in general with, with this group called the Zealots. Um, now, the Zealots were a sect that began in 6 AD. And in 6 AD, you have... Uh, the province of Judea becoming a Roman province. And, and that's a very important historical marker because when Judea becomes a Roman province, all of a sudden they're required to pay tax. All the Jews are required to pay tax to the Roman Empire. And that brings about a great controversy. Should the Jews pay tax to a Gentile pagan emperor? And uh, two Jews in particular very much uh, did not like that idea. Uh, Judas the Galilean and Zadok, a Pharisee, revolted against this. And you actually have uh, Judas the Galilean mentioned in Acts 5.37. I'll just... There, um, Gamaliel is is talking about what they should do with the, the apostles if they should allow them to continue preaching Christ. And... Uh, he says, well, you know, if this thing is of God, then it will last. And if it's not of God, well, well, then uh, it will disappear. And uh, uh, Gamaliel says in Acts 5.37, After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. So he's talking about how um, he was not successful in, in his revolt. And yet the, uh, the zealots remained as uh, a sect up until um, the destruction of the temple. And in fact, it was a lot of their, uh, um, 
insurrections that led to the Jewish war and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple uh, by the Romans in 70 AD. And I, I mentioned how you know, there's this question of should you pay tax to a gem- Gentile governor? And it's striking that you know, there's that question that's going around in uh, Judea at this time. And it's, it's perhaps this is what's behind that question that um, the people ask Jesus in Mark 12, 14. Uh, when they came, when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no man, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And, and that, that question, should we be paying taxes to Caesar, seems to be coming from uh, uh, what we have happening with the zealots. Uh, the zealots had many similar beliefs with uh, the Pharisees, uh, but perhaps the main distinction is you know, the Pharisees, in a sense, were content to let sleeping dogs lie and, okay, we're under Roman occupation, we don't like it, and we'll voice our objection to it, but we won't go to the, the place of insurrection. We're not going to go into active rebellion. Whereas the zealots seem... Uh, seems to be the hardliners. No, we're, we're going to um, actively oppose uh, the Roman oppression. Um, and oh, sorry. And it seems um, um, well. Josephus puts the zealots often in the same category as what Scripture refers to as robbers or bandits. So when talking about Barabbas, for instance, and during the crucifixion of Christ um, in, in Mark 15, 7, we read, and there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels who had committed murder in the rebellion. That could be a reference to the work of, of the zealots. And um, at least that's what Josephus seems to argue. And Josephus also argues that the two men that were uh, hating uh, uh, with Christ were, were also, you know, the, these bandits, the, these insurrectionists. Um, whether that's whether they, they had close ties with the zealots, or it's it's unclear. But uh, it's just a uh, interesting, interesting uh, note uh, of what Josephus is saying. That uh, uh, picture there is is. Um, uh, I forget where it is. I think it's in, in Rome. It's, it's talking about how it's depicting uh, the conquest of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So you see them t- taking off all that temple uh, treasure. Any questions there on the zealots? Yes, Jesse. Yes. Yeah. They, they were definitely looking back to the time of the Maccabees, um, and um, they're also they would uh, at least from what I was, I was reading this week they they were uh, would tie themselves back even to Phineas, um, uh stopping uh, the fornication that was happening in the camp of 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 Israel uh, with the Moabites. Just this, this zeal about um, maintaining purity as a people and not allowing any interaction with Gentiles. So they would chase their lineage fairly far back.
but as a group, they didn't come about till 680. Yeah, uh, uh, violent, violent, uh, yeah, insurrectionists, rebels, yeah. Any other questions or comments? All right, let's move on now to uh, the high priest. Um, you see there, um, that's that's an artist's depiction of what uh, potentially are the high priest garments. Um, um, there's there's multiple depictions, but um, I think this is is a fairly fairly decent one. You have the the turban that they wear. Um, you have the urm and the thumbin. You have the the breastplate with the the twelve tribes. Um, and as you'll see, as we we talk about the high priest, these garments were, are very very important uh, to what's happening right now. So up until Herod's reign, control of Judea was by priest kings. This was uh, uh, what the Hasmoneans were were doing. They were joining the office of priest and king together, and so the high priest was was uh, the ruler of of Judea of of Jerusalem. Um, Herod divided this role. Practically speaking, because he couldn't be a high priest, he was an Idumean. He was of Edomite descent. He he, he couldn't uh, uh, take on this role, and so he he made. Uh, he was very political about this. He he made a rather obscure uh, person priest, high priest, um, who would not be any political uh, threat to him. And as you're reading the history of of who gets appointed high priest and who doesn't, you realize that you know this is very heavily controlled by the state and really it's it's being abused um, it's very the high priest becomes a very very political role and people are deposed for this reason and that reason this person's put in place because he's married to so and so and you're wanting to court favor with that person and it's just a very very political uh, role and so um, um, with with the, the reign of Herod, um, the high priest and the Sanhedrin lost a lot of their authority because they're just essentially using, being used as a puppet by uh, King Herod. Now, Herod dies in 4 BC, 4 or 5 BC, and Archelaus, his son, rules, in his, in, rules uh, uh, Judea as an ethnarch. Um, and um, um, we'll, we'll get a little bit more to that later, but um, after after he reigns um, for I think a period of about nine years, then Judea becomes uh, a Roman province, and the high priesthood actually regains a lot of its original authority when they became a Roman province, um, uh, because uh, you know. Uh, um, there wasn't as maybe close a tie with with the ruler as with un, under either Herod uh, the Great or Herod Archelaus, um, and so uh, the high priest was suddenly able to administer a lot of the internal affairs of Judea through the Sanhedrin, and he's no longer subject to the whims of the Herods, 
and the high priest really became the unquestioned uh, representative and spokesperson of the nation and ultimately answerable to Caesar himself. Um, they're still appointed by Roman governors who um, would essentially accept uh, the highest uh, uh, payer. Now, if you wanted to be a high priest, well, you just, you know, here's, here's enough money and the, the Roman governor would, would make you high priest. So there's still a lot of uh, bribery happening, a lot of uh, um, undercutting of, of what this role should actually be. Um, and interesting to note that uh, this is where the, the garments of the priest become very important. You know, during um, uh, the Herod's rule, the um, Herodian dynasty retained control of the garments and would only give them at a certain time to the high priest. Now, the Roman officials continue this. They, they store the... The garments of the high priest and the Antonia fortress, if you remember uh, the diagram of the temple that I showed you last week, the Antonia fortress is, is right beside the temple. That's where the garments are held. And uh, the Roman emperors retain control of that and only give it to the priests during the time of the festivals. And then they'll take them back. And this is one way that the Roman Empire uh, you know, make sure that they're, the high priests, you know, remain somewhat subservient, somewhat obedient to uh, the Roman Empire. Um, in scripture, you have frequent mention of the chief priests. Uh, the chief priests are those wealthy families that are associated with uh, the priests. Um, um, uh, they're, they're really... The, the families from which you get the high priests, from which you get the temple treasurers, from which you get the, the captain of the temple guard. Um, so they're all coming from a few families. And these families were not liked at all, really, by the common people, as you'll see in this. And what the Talmud says on, on the chief priests, Woe to me for the house of Boethus. Woe to me for their club. Woe is me for the house of Annas. Woe is me for their whisperings. Woe is me for the house of Cantharis, who is for me... Well, sorry, woe is me for their pen. Woe is me for the house of Ishmael. Woe is me for their fists, for they are the high priests, their sons the treasurers. Their sons-in-laws are temple officers, and their servants beat the people with cudgels. Um... You ought to excuse the uh, who is me. Um, that was Microsoft Word continually changing woe to, to who. I caught it the first couple times. But, but anyways, this, this shows you know, how the common people are, are viewing uh, the chief priests. They're not well received and, and are really abusing their power you know, through bribes. And, and it's, it's, it's power isolated in a couple individuals. Annas, for example, um, he was... Uh, uh, high priest around the time of Christ for, for a little while. He wasn't actually high priest when, when Christ was executed. It was Caiaphas. But um, he had five sons. Five of his sons became high priest after him, and he had a couple sons-in-laws as well that were high priest after him. And so it's power retained in a few families. And rather than being chosen for uh, their religious virtue, they're being chosen for, well, you've got the power, you've got the, the respect of the people. Any questions around the on the chief priests?
or the high priest. So as I've said before, Herod the Great dies in about 4 to 5 BC. So that's after um, reigning for 33 years as king in Jerusalem. Um, and Ethnarch uh, uh, Herod Archelaus, Herod's son, reigns for from 4 BC to 680. And then you see, see his, his territory is pretty similar to his father's ter- territory. Um, and um, just a historical uh, tidbit here. So Herod the Great dies in controversy. As I said last time, you know, towards the end of his life, he, he started executing his sons, um, a bunch of his sons, because he view, he's viewing them as, as rivals, and he's, he's really becoming a tyrant, as we see in, even in the story of, the, uh, of Christ's birth, where he kills all, all the, the young baby boys in Bethlehem. And, you know, he's just really uh, being a nuisance for himself and not respecting at all his role as king or, and especially uh, the Jewish uh, religion because at the end of his life, he places a golden eagle over the temple entrance, you know, sort of as a sign of, of his allegiance with Rome. And, you know, we, in, our, in our day, we might not think, oh, it's just an eagle over, over the temple, but this would have been very blasphemous to... To the Jews, as they're going up to the temple, and they're they're seeing this imperial uh, symbol over their 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 place of worship, over the temple, and um, um, two teachers and uh, instigate forty students, roughly about forty students, to go into the temple you know, under a cover of darkness and chop down this eagle, and and uh, they do so. And uh, Herod is obviously not very happy about that, and he has, you know, those two teachers and 40 students killed. And so Archelaus ascends the throne in the midst of this controversy. Um, he ascends the throne wearing, you know, white garments, uh, showing, you know, his purity, and he ascends, you know, his golden throne. And uh, initially he's looked at favorably by the people, by the Jews, because he's promising to lower their taxes. He's not going to be as harsh or cruel as his, his father. And he even s- suggests the idea that he might appoint a more pure high priest. Um, but Archelaus really has no authority at this point. He has to get his authority from Caesar to even act as king and to make these promises. So Archelaus is telling the people, well, well just wait until I get can go talk with Caesar and I can be put into this position as your king. Um, but, um, and so, you know, he's, he's done his, his, uh, his speech there, and uh, he goes off uh, to party for the night. And uh, that evening, a great mourning erupts in the whole city of Jerusalem because of the death of these two teachers and, and these 40 students. And the people are flocking to the temple and mourning there. And... Um, Archelaus does not take that well, and he commands the army to go into the temple and put down, uh, stop this morning, and th- about 3,000 people end up being killed um, really at the start of his reign. Um, and eventually he goes off to, to Caesar, and Caesar does appoint him as, as ethnarch over Judea. But um, really that's, um, that's not a very uh, a good start to, to a reign of about nine years Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
know, studying this history, it, it's, 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 you realize how uh, um, deadly of a, a time it was and how there was a lot of turmoil, just like one problem right after the other. There is a lot, a great deal of unrest. Um, and Archelaus is actually mentioned in Scripture, so uh, you find that in, in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, uh, um, Joseph and Mary and Jesus flee to Egypt because Herod the Great is killing uh, uh, baby boys in Bethlehem. And um, then Joseph gets a, a dream in Egypt, sign him to, to go back because Herod is, is dead now. And uh, we read there, Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. So that's, that's one scriptural reference we have to Archelaus. And obviously, uh, you know, you could uh, understand why, why uh, Joseph has that same fear, you know, uh, his father is acting I mean his son is pretty much acting like his father and being murderous and um, um. so um, in 680 as I've already mentioned Judea becomes a Roman province and it becomes a Roman province as part of, of Syria and so it has, has um, the same legate as Syria and at this time it's Quinirus uh, Quinuria, sorry, who was a uh, legate of Syria. Um, and uh, becoming a Roman province, it's governed by a prefect appointed by the emperor. And so that's, that's who Pontius Pilate will be. He'll be a, a prefect appointed by, by the emperor. Um, so um, in becoming a Roman province, there's that immediate question of taxation and how you're going to do taxation. And so, uh, as I already mentioned, uh, with Judas the Galilean and the Zealots, uh, Quinurius uh, appoints a census to determine how much tax is, is to be taken. So, um, um, and that leads to that, that uprising. Um, the governor of a province like uh, Judea would be, of, it's a relatively minor province in the Roman Empire. Um, it was likely drawn from the equestrian order in Roman society. And so in Roman society, you have, I think, I think five orders. The highest order would be the senators. Then you have the equestri equestrians. And then somewhere below that, you have plebeians. And, um, but I, I, I forget all, all the exact orders. But it, the equestrian order uh, is referring to a, a group in, in Roman society um, of, of, of moderate distinction, um, finding its, its heritage in, in the cavalry of, of the early days of the Roman Empire. Um, the troops that would be stationed in Judea were not legionaries. Instead, they were auxiliary troops. And auxiliary troops would be those who did not have Roman citizenship. And so these would be conscripted from the various you know, parts of the Roman Empire and would often um, be 
trying to earn Roman citizenship for military service. And at this time, um, um, you know, the, the, the place where the auxiliary troops were stationed were, were, were where they would be recruited from. So, you know, Syrians, uh, the Syrian auxiliary troops would be uh, deployed in Syria. And similarly, uh, Judean troops, Judean auxiliary troops would be deployed in Judea. Um, that changes later on in the history of the Roman Empire, but no, that, that provides an interesting uh, tidbit because uh, when, when Scripture is talking about uh, uh, soldiers uh, around this time, you know, these you know, are very likely uh, Judeans, uh, and there's obviously you know we've talked before about how uh, publicans would be very much looked up, down upon because they betrayed their country, and uh, similarly, soldiers could, could be looked down upon because of that. Um, Caponius is the first prefect of Judea in 6 AD, and as I said before, he, took, uh, he immediately took custody of the high priest's vestments, kept in the Antonia fortress, and uh, the Antonia and fortress is really the headquarters of the Roman garrison in in Jerusalem, and the prefect typically resided at Caesarea Maritima, which is you'll recall from last time is that port city that uh, Herod the Great built, and really being able to uh, connect Judea with Rome. Um, so that's where the prefect typically resided, um, but during times of unrest. Or, or times where there was the potential of unrest, um, they would go and reside in Jerusalem. And that's actually why uh, Pontius Pilate is in Jerusalem during Christ's crucifixion. That's not where he would normally reside, but he's in Jerusalem because it's the time of the Passover. And if, if you look at the history of, of the Passovers at this time, often there are times of, uh, it could be times of, of rioting. You know, there's one story where uh, the people... Uh, start pelting uh, the high priest with uh, uh, citrons uh, uh, during the uh, Feast of Tabernacles because as, as part of, of, of the ritual there, uh, this, the high priest is to pour water out and the high priest ends up pouring water beside the altar which was in the Sadducean manner, rather than on, on the altar, which was in, in the Pharisaical manner. And the people get very upset about that, and essentially uh, a, a riot pretty much ensues uh, uh, when that happens. So uh, the, the time of the feast, uh, very much a, a time of, of potential unrest. And so that's why uh, Pilate's at Jerusalem during the Passover. Any questions? So during this time, Caesar Augustus is reigning as the first Roman emperor, and he reigns from 27 BC to 14 AD. Um, and that's followed by Tiberius, who is reigning uh, uh, during the crucifixion of Christ, but uh, Caesar Augustus is, is reigning during the uh, um, early days of, of Christ's life. Um, 
Caesar Augustus initiated the imperial cult, uh, which identifies the emperor with God. He didn't go to maybe some of the same extremes as uh, the other Caesars did regarding this, but he, he's the one who at least initiated it uh, during his reign. Um, um, but in, in God's providence, we really see why um, you know this time period was chosen for for Christ to come into the world. Um, at this time, you have the, the Pax Romana, uh, the Roman peace, and there's, yeah, we've talked a lot about a, about a lot of unrest, but in general, there is peace, uh, a great deal of peace throughout the Roman Empire. Um, about two, and there'll be a period of about 200 years of peace from war. Yeah, that, that peace ended in, in 180 AD with the death of Marcus Aurelius. Um, but there's many benefits uh, with uh, Pax Romana, including trade, um, the building of an extensive system of, of roads, uh, which facilitates both travel and communication, which allows the very quick and rapid spread of, of the gospel. Um, so that's uh, one, one blessing there. And the Roman government also ensures uh, a level of justice and protection. And we, we even see uh, Paul pleading that, that justice and protection um, when with his Roman citizenship that uh, hey it's unjust for you guys to be beating me I, without a trial I'm, I'm a Roman citizen and then we even see you know, a semblance of that even with Christ's trial where the Jews have to go uh, to Pontius Pilate and get his approval uh, to crucify uh, Jesus um, so there's, there's a level of justice and protection there um, and there's also a, a, much of a common language at this time, uh, Koine Greek. Um, uh, common Greek is, is the, the uh, common language of the people at this time. And so that also allows a very quick spread of the gospel, much like English today is, is almost, uh, you know, there's probably someone in almost every country who knows English. Um, they know it poorly, or but at least they have some some in, uh, knowledge of English. Um, and the Rome, uh, the Roman Empire, uh, really tried to take a policy of care with with dealing with the Jews, um, and because of Sabbath observance. Uh, uh, Jews were excluded from conscription into the Roman army. Uh, they could still volunteer, but um, um, uh, they were not forced to, to work in, in the Roman army, serve in the Roman army. Um, and they did not uh, colonize uh, Jewish Palestine, so they, they weren't actively sending um, uh, Romans there. Because of of the Jews' difficulty with with Gentile interactions, and temples were also not built in Jewish cities. So throughout much of the Roman Empire, you have you know, with it going the Roman gods and then the construction of temples. But uh, Rome really respects uh, uh, the Jewish religion at this time and and does not build temples there. And. Um, let me see here. Got a little little artifact to show the kids. Um, so coinage. So that becomes a very important thing during the uh, 
uh, time of Christ. Um, now, with even you know uh, what we talked about earlier, uh, whether it's right to pay taxes to to Caesar, and uh, so this is a a, a, a replica of a coin. I think it's from the time of Augustus Caesar, but a rough idea of what a common coin would look like. But hanging on to that thing for for years, hoping for an opportunity like this, and finally I. I've been like, do I really want to hang on to this? But, um, all right. So make sure you enjoy that, you know. No, I'm joking. All right. So last uh, person I want to talk about here is Pontius Pilate. Um, he's, um, um, he reigns from 26 AD to 36 AD. Um, and he's described by Herod Agrippa, the elder, as naturally inflexible, a blend of self-will and relentlessness. And uh, the stories we have of Pontius Pilate is, a, is he is a very, um, uh, uh, he's not a very savory character. We'll put it at that. Um, early on in the days of his reign, he sneaks military, Roman military uh, standards bearing the imperial image into Jerusalem at the dead of night. And so the Jews wake up and they're having all these images of the Roman gods, you know, which were, were, were part of that uh, uh, imperial, imperial manner, uh, throughout the city of Jerusalem. And there is a huge uproar, understandably, about this. You know, what are these uh, pagan Roman deities doing in Jerusalem at this time? This is a violation of the second commandment. And people are enraged and, and threatening an uprising. And, and Herod's, well... You know, no, well, whatever, and sort of it really ignores the Jewish sentiment. Eventually, he he deals with them, but so that happens, and then later on, uh, he places gilded shields in Herod's palace in Jerusalem, and um, this was once again regarded as a violation of the sanctity of Jerusalem. The fact that there would be these these Roman shields brought into Herod's palace, and um, and the citizens of Jerusalem, led by four sons of Herod the Great, protested, you know, these, these shields should not be here. You're, you're defiling the sanctity of Jerusalem. And Pilate refuses to remove them. And then eventually they have to appeal to Tiberius uh, Caesar. And uh, Tiberius Caesar is the one who has to get Pilate to, to remove these. And, and eventually he does. And he moves them to the temple of Augustus in Caesarea. Um... So those are two stories. And then uh, a third story is Pilate purposed to, uh, he decided to build um, an aqueduct carrying water from the southern highlands to Jerusalem. And, you know, there's a lot of advantages with, with an aqueduct. Uh, and, you know, this aqueduct would, would feed a lot into the temple, uh, bring, uh, you know, fresh water supply to the temple, which is really needful for, for the sacrifices and for the ritual cleansings. And so the Jews don't have, really have an uh, an issue with the building of this aqueduct, but Pilate demands that the aqueduct be paid for by the temple treasury, and that's where the uproar starts, uh, because the the Jews start arguing that no, we we shouldn't be using these funds for such a common and secular uh, um, purpose, 
um, viewed as a sacrilege to use the, these funds which are devoted to the temple and the worship for you know, a common thing like an aqueduct. And uh, so they refused to, to pay and to give funds from that treasury. And so uh, Pilate uh, raids the fund uh, with troops. He, he goes into the temple with troops and just uh, grabs uh, whatever money he wants. And uh, obviously that's going to be uh, uh, a, a deadly incident. Um, and um, this is potentially what is mentioned, is referred to in Luke 13. In Luke 13 you have uh, people coming to Jesus asking, um, uh, what about those Galileans who were killed by Pilate um, and their blood was mixed with the sac- blood of the sacrifices? So uh, there's potential that that's what's in reference there. Um, Pilate also attacked uh, Samaritan pilgrims on Mount Gerizim. So Mount Gerizim for the Samaritans was like Mount Zion. It was their holy mountain. And I'm not going to get all the details for this right, but the Samaritans uh, held that the first five books of the Bible, the the books of Moses, that was the word of God. And um, they were waiting in expectation for the prophet that Moses promised in Deuteronomy 18, um, hoping that uh, one day he would come and there was really a messianic, uh, tie to that, that prophet in, in Deuteronomy 18. Um, and someone rose up saying that, oh, I am, I am that prophet. And so the, the Samaritan pilgrims flock to Mount Gerizim. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> they flock to Mount Gerizim, and this man's claiming a certain degree of kingship. And obviously, Pilate's going to have to uh, put that down, and he puts that down, and um, and uh, he sends infantry and cavalry to put down this this religious movement. And there's mass bloodshed, and uh, the Samaritans send a delegation to the legate of Syria, and that's really the end of Pilate's reign. Um, because he's called back to Rome to answer for what he did with the Samaritans. Well, that's it for um, this lesson. Any questions or comments? I I can't recall off the top of my head. I think he was a Pharisee. That's where he would put his allegiance. Primary allegiance. He had very negative things to say about the Sadducees. He was not an Essene. He said he lived with the Essenes for maybe two or three years. I think from the ages of like 19 to 21. No, no. Yeah. Really a, a historian of, of much of that time period. Yeah. 
somewhat reputable. You have to read him with a grain of salt because sometimes he he exaggerates facts or he has a, a political purpose for narrating things in a certain way that he does. Yeah, yeah. So, but uh, in general, he seems um, to be historically accurate. Any other questions or comments? Where did that coin end up? Okay, I'll grab it later. All right, let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we come before you. Lord, we thank you for your providence, for how you guide the course of human history according to your sovereign purposes. We thank you, O Lord, for this day in which you have given us opportunity to hear your word and to worship your name. We pray that it be a blessing to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.